Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Joel Bakan to the podcast. Joel is an American-Canadian writer, filmmaker, and a professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. He is the author of The Corporation, an analysis of the evolution and modern-day behavior of corporations from a critical perspective. Published in 2004, it was later made into a film which won numerous international awards. Joel recently published The New Corporation, How Good Corporations Are Bad for Democracy, which has also been made into a film, The New Corporation, The Unfortunately Necessary Sequel. Thank you very much, Joel, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. I've uh, I've enjoyed your broadcast, and it's a real privilege and honor to be here. Yes, yes. Your new book is coming out now, and you're building on work that you've been doing for many uh, decades now, I guess. But just by way of introduction for the listeners, can you talk a little bit about what you do? <laughs> sure. I mean, I come at this as a as a legal scholar. Um, I'm a I'm a law professor at the University of British Columbia, trained across the pond from me in North America at Oxford, where I did my first law degree. And uh, what happened as I was learning about corporate law, beginning at Oxford, actually, and then continuing on through further studies, um, was I realized that it's a very strange institution, the corporation. Um, We imbue it with personhood. We treat it as a legal person. So it can have rights and obligations and liabilities as it operates in the economy and the legal system. Uh, and then we imbue it with a personality that basically says it needs always to serve its own best interest. And those are the words that are used in the law. A corporation is obliged to always serve its own best interest. And the courts have interpreted the best interest to mean the financial interest of its shareholders. So I put all that together. I had done a first degree in psychology and learned about psychopaths. And I put those two things together. And it occurred to me that the uh, institution, the legal person that is the corporation, has a psychopathic personality. And so the first book uh, and film I made back in the early 2000s, I played out that idea. What I noticed uh, beginning around 2005 is that corporations themselves started to say, and people started to say to me from the corporate world, oh, you're right, you know, we, we've been bad, we've, we've been self-interested, we've been 
even psychopathic, you know, that thank you. Thank you for diagnosing us. Thank you for telling us we're better now. We've reformed ourselves. Now we're sustainable. Now we're socially responsible. Now we're going to move forward and we're going to care about the world. And we are going to provide the solutions to the world's problems rather than causing those problems. And that's what I identify in this new book and film as the new corporation. And so uh, suffice it to say, it's a skeptical inquiry into how much corporations have actually changed, whether they've changed at all. And the conclusion I reach, not to give too much away, is that uh, the psychopath has found its charm. Uh, so now the corporation, still a psychopath, but a far more charming psychopath. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. No, it's, it's a very uh, thought-provoking book and just a, a lot of really interesting ideas I'd like to dig in with, you know, in, in these discussions. But I, I guess over that period, you look around today, there's few companies, if any public companies, that won't have a, you know, sustainability strategy and, and uh, quite a significant commitment for many large companies, you know, producing zero waste, 100% renewable energy right away, you know, very sustainable type uh, products and so forth. Surely that's got to be a good thing. They're moved away from ignoring these issues, which, which they, they, they certainly were, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, some of them have made some really important Important strides and in, in, and and significant impact on these dimensions. Absolutely, and this is one of the the reasons I felt it was important to write this book and to make this film is that on the surface it feels like corporations have begun to walk the walk or walk the talk, however that's stated. That they that they are doing good things, that they are reducing their emissions, that they are using less water. Uh, that they are um, supporting important social initiatives in the developing world. And so on a first glance, this seems like a good thing. And I guess what I would say is, in itself, it is a good thing. Um, you know, you can't say it's bad to be reducing waste. That is a good thing when viewed in isolation. And I start with that idea in both the book and film. And, and I basically say, you, you, you can't, you can't say that's bad. So why do I have a problem with it? And it's when I put it into a larger context that, uh, that I become worried and that I think we should all become worried because to put it not too bluntly, what is happening is corporations are making themselves better than they were. They are actually doing something more than just greenwashing now. They do have these programs. Uh, but what they're saying is, and that makes us capable of governing you, of governing society, that we're now like government. We're big. We have lots of resources. And unlike before, we care about the public interest. We do sustainable things. We do socially responsible things. So that then becomes justification for deregulation. Well, if we're good actors now, we don't need governments to regulate us. We can regulate ourselves. It becomes justification for privatization. If we're good actors now, we can run your schools. We can run your water systems. If we're good actors now, we can solve climate change. We don't need to be told what to do. And the reason that's a problem is exactly because the corporation has not changed. 
it still has to put its best interest first. So we're in this, this bizarre situation where they look and they act like they care, but they're actually institutionally composed in ways that disable them from caring in the way that they say they will. So they're always only going to go so far as profits become an issue. They're not going to pursue sustainability in ways that make them unprofitable. They're only going to do it in ways that either help them make profits or don't hinder them from making profits. And so we're at this place where if we buy, if we drink the Kool-Aid that they're offering us, then we will be handing over governing authority in effect to institutions that are not capable of governing in the public interest. Right, right. Well, that's very interesting. And 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 in your, uh, you say that uh, uh, CSR is in a sense a kind of pillar of neoliberalism. And I'm just wondering, you know, uh, the ideas of neoliberalism, the your deregulatory, uh, however you define it, you know, moves that have been taking place in the last thirty or forty years. They already were arguing for deregulation and for all, all those kind of dynamics that you're talking about. Why do they need on top of that to have this sustainability side of things, which isn't necessarily part of the neoliberal agenda, as I understand it? So, you know, they've made their arguments about the power of markets, the power of corporations within markets and so forth. Why do they need an, an, another argument? Was that not unfolding in any case, this, this argument about letting the corporation get on with its, its, its own business? Yeah, I, well, I think that's a great point. And, and that's another sort of academic or historical point that I was really interested in, in, in the book. It's, you know, neoliberalism seemed to have a lot of uh, energy and steam behind it. What happened and why did they need to sort of do this uh, left turn and say that they were now benevolent. It wasn't just about markets. It was now about the public interest. And what I argue in my book is that when you go back to the late 90s and the early 2000s, neoliberalism had lost its shine. Uh, there were people in the streets. There was a massive anti-globalization movement. Uh, people were worried about corporations having too much power. They were worried about the destruction of the earth. They were worried about growing inequality. And the argument for markets, which had worked really well from the early 1980s, you know, when it's architects like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman had sort of put these ideas out there and they had a lot of shine and sheen to them. And, and people were like, yeah, this is the solution. Well, that was becoming exhausted by the late 1990s. And, and I think the most tangible example of that was the, uh, the anti-globalization movement. Less tangibly, you started to have governments being elected that, that were talking about uh, more regulation, that were not as committed to privatization. Um, and basically, from a narrative perspective, from a storytelling perspective, the story of free markets just was running out of gas. It just wasn't working. People weren't buying it. They they were looking at the world around them and saying, you know what, this idea that we should all just pursue our own self-interest and not give a crap about anything else, it's not really working. We're ending up with a world that kind of looks like that. You know, the the boats, the boats aren't rising with the rising tide and everybody isn't benefiting and all of that. So um, so there's a problem here. 
And and so there was a lot of popular discontent and corporations right around that time. And our my first book and film were really sort of at that moment of saying, this isn't working anymore. You guys are psychopaths. It's self-interest. And it's not helping the world. It's hurting the world. And a lot of people were saying that at the time. And and so corporations came back beginning right around 2004, 2005 with this new image, with this idea that, okay, we heard the message. We heard you all in the streets. Um, we heard what you were saying, and we are going to listen to that. We're going to up our game. We're going to become better. And that was really needed. And, and I'll just add one thing. I mean, when you talk to... Uh, which I did, somebody like Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab is one of the architects of modern capitalism. He's the head of the World Economic Forum. He's the host to world leaders and corporate leaders at Davos every year. He is Davos. And he is the, the person who really started to run with this idea of a new kind of corporation. And he will say point blank that neoliberalism is bad. We don't want neoliberalism anymore, he says. We need a kind of corporate capitalism that is more socially responsible, that's more publicly minded. And I think Klaus Schwab is really a, a barometer. He's, he's a real sort of spokesperson um, for where corporate capitalism is at. Uh, and when he starts saying that we're past neoliberalism, that we need to do something different, uh, and he actually devotes his entire Davos and World Economic uh, Forum enterprise to making corporate capitalism different in that way, uh, I think we have to listen. Uh, and especially when it's not just him, but it's Bill Gates, it's Jamie Dimon, it's uh, Lord John Brown, it's every other major corporate leader in the world singing from the same songbook. In two night, 2019, uh, the, the round table uh, the sort of organization of major U.S. corporate chiefs uh, commits to a new kind of corporation that cares about the community, society, workers, the environment. Uh, so this isn't a small trend. This is the corporate sector basically saying, you were right, markets aren't enough, neoliberalism isn't enough, we're now going to create, call it what you will, Social capitalism, natural capitalism, green capitalism, conscious capitalism, creative capitalism. Those are all words that are used by various people to describe this. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's very seductive, you know, and it's hard to deny, you know, these corporations, corporations generally, the powerful systems allowing them to operate, you know, seamlessly around the world, uh, you know, highly effective in getting things done. Um, you, you make the argument that actually they, they just cannot be socially responsible. It, that at the heart, the way they're constituted. Can you talk about that a little bit, Joel? Yeah, again, I mean, it goes back to <clears throat> what I was talking about in terms of my, my sort of revelations as a, as a legal scholar about the legal nature of the corporation. And it's very simple. If you are a publicly traded corporation, you have a fiduciary obligation to serve your shareholders' financial interests. That is your legal obligation. You can't take shareholders' money and say, I'm going to do good with this and I'm not going to give you a return. You, you just can't do that. That's not the way corporate capitalism works. If, if I, as an investor or a citizen or a consumer, if I want to give money to an organization that's going to do good with it, 
I give it to a charity. Or if I give it to a government through taxation and hope that they'll mount programs. But if when I give my money as an investor to a corporation, when I buy shares in a company, I expect and I have a legal right to expect that I will get a return. So a corporation always has to ask the question first, is what I'm going to do now going to help generate returns for my shareholder? Every question, every, every decision, every action has to go through that filter. And the argument I make in the book is when you ask that question, that's going to stop you from doing a lot of things that the world needs, and it's going to cause you to do a lot of things that harm the world. And, and as long as that question is the operative question for what a corporation can do, we've got a problem in relying too heavily on them to do good in the world and not to do harm. Now, I'm not saying that corporations can't do some good. But when you talk to corporate chiefs, which I have, and you say to them, so what are the parameters? What are the, the limits on the good you can do? They will inevitably talk about win-win. They will inevitably talk about doing well by doing good. They will inevitably tie whatever good they're going to do and whatever harm they're going to avoid to what's best for them. Now, when a democratic government makes a decision, at least legally, its obligation is to do what's best for society, what's best for the citizens. I'm not saying governments always do that, but institutionally, that's how a government is constructed. A corporation is constructed very, very differently. Self-interest is its legal imperative. Right. It's very interesting. I want to come back uh, to uh, th this question of the investors and, and, and what their uh, influence is. But here's a question for you. What would a good corporation look like? Is that an oxymoron? <laughs> I don't think it's an oxymoron. I mean, I've always said that corporations are good at doing a particular thing. So if you're going to sort of go into the legal laboratory and create, invent, an institution to raise large amounts of capital, the corporation is your answer. It's very, very good at that. In the same way that a lawnmower is very good at cutting lawns, but you don't want a lawnmower to give you a haircut or to make your smoothie in the morning. And in the same way, there are certain things that corporations just can't do. Um, I don't think they should be running schools, for example. So, so you, you, you have to understand what a corporation is a tool for and not assume it's an all-purpose tool that can do anything and everything, and that should. And so if we ask what a good corporation looks like, assuming we're in a capitalist system and we have a publicly traded corporation, a good corporation is a corporation that isn't lobbying to get deregulated. A good corporation isn't a corporation, is a corporation that isn't lobbying to take over public uh, institutions uh, like schools and like water systems. A good corporation is a corporation that drives in its own lane, basically. Um, a good corporation is one that abides by regulations and that welcomes being regulated and that sees regulation uh, not only as necessary for a society, but also as a way to avoid it having to compete 
with other corporations by driving down environmental and social standards. So, you know, you can, a, a good corporation is one that sees itself and is seen for what it does well, which is to be, in effect, a financing vehicle for projects that we need in society and that have to be done on a mass scale and thereby need a lot of capital. That's a good corporation. Very interesting. Now, how would we know? I mean, I'm getting the impression, Joel, that you don't think we've made significant progress since you wrote your first book on those dimensions for being a a good corporation. But uh, how would we know? Where would we look to get an index, to get a sense of whether or not there are, you know, out there, maybe lots of corporations which meet those, those criteria? Well, I, I don't think there are. I haven't seen yet any corporation, industry group, at least not in the Anglo-Canadian American system. Um, it gets a little bit different when you're dealing with some European corporations, especially when they are interwoven in complicated ways with government, which tends to be uh, more the case in European countries. But <clears throat> Sticking with with my sort of uh, wheelhouse, which is the uh, Anglo-American corporation and its particular legal structure, I haven't seen any corporation, I haven't seen any industry group go to government and say, would you please increase environmental standards in a substantial and significant way? Would you please take seriously what scientists are saying And if we're an oil and gas company, put us out of business or tell us we can't drill, tell us we can't explore, tell us that we have to get into renewables. Would you please raise our taxes so that we can have... Is that that not an extreme case? I'm not being extreme. You're asking, I'm I'm saying, if, if you want... If, I mean, look, is we there not somewhere talk, in the middle. Is there not somewhere in the middle where you're, you're you know, you're, you're not. Yeah. Somewhere in the middle is, yes, there are some corporations that are better than other corporations. No doubt. And but but that's not the question here. The question is, what would a truly good corporation look like? And and when in terms of some corporations being better than than others, um, you know, the, the analogy I use, and I, I apologize for this since, since you're in the United Kingdom, uh, there is ice hockey in the United Kingdom. It's just not very popular. But you can apply this to rugby or you can apply this to football. Um, the analogy is some teams are more violent than other teams in ice hockey. Some players are more violent than other players in ice hockey. It's not that every player and every team is the same in terms of their level of violence. But the fact is the game as a whole is structured through a set of rules and a set of practices and a set of tangible uh, places that you play and how you play it that make it a violent game. Ice hockey is a violent game in the way that rugby is a violent game. And the same thing with corporations. They're all playing the same game of being structured by a legal character that compels them to put self-interest first. But some are better than others at finding ways to meld that with doing good, with finding win-win solutions. And, you know, great, good for them. I'm glad, you know, Unilever is a good example of that. It's a company that puts a lot of effort into, um, into those sorts of things. 
Um, and most other major corporations have all kinds of programs. So they're trying to do that, but it gets back to the original point that they always come up against the wall of not being able to go further than what will be profitable. And the fact is that we live in a world where the things that need to be done can't be done in a way that's profitable. You know, stopping climate change in the way we really need to stop climate change can't be done in a way that's profitable. What can be done in a way that's profitable is to say, well, as Lord Brown says in my book, um, well, we we will we'll take care of climate change. It's just going to take a very long time uh, because, you know, it's impossible to get off of fossil fuels anytime soon. So what we'll do is we'll we'll look at lighter fossil fuels um, and then we'll go to renewables after that. But that's way in the future. So that's yeah. kind of the model that the good oil companies and gas companies deploy. But what scientists are telling us, we need to do it, you know, tomorrow or yesterday, and we actually can. But that's not profitable for an oil and gas company. So the best oil and gas company in the world is going to be benevolent and they're going to say, oh, well, you know, we'll try to do something. We'll get into renewables, but we're not going to get out of fossil fuels until it's not profitable to extract them anymore or unless governments tell us not to. And we're not going to go and lobby government to tell us not to. Is there an argument for pragmatism? I mean, we're talking about existential risks in, in narrowing time frames, and you think, okay, well, corporations aren't going to change their colors overnight. But listen, you know, these are huge organizations. If one of these global multinationals can, you know, change its supply structure, supply chain, so that you know all of the feeds coming into it are, you know, much more significantly sustainable. If you, if we can, I mean, we'll say nudge, but more than that, get ten or fifteen percent impact. Of course, there'll always be areas that aren't going to be profit. But listen, if there's 10, 15 percent where they can, you know, really make a difference and are in these kind of win-win situations or however you define it, yeah, let's take that while we can. Fergal, here's the problem. <laughs> yes, if we look at it in isolation. But here's the problem. When I was in Davos, I talked to somebody named Richard Edelman. Richard Edelman is one of, along with Klaus Schwab, one of the most influential people in the world of corporate capitalism. He runs a company called Edelman and Company. It's a public relations firm. And he is the guru of all gurus in the business world. He's who everybody listens to. He very seldom expresses an opinion. What he does of his own, what he does is he sort of looks at the world. He says, this is the way I think it's going. And what he has said uh, recently is he really believes that corporations need to step up their game. They need to be good in the way that we've been talking about. They need to become good actors. And that's all great in itself. The problem is that there is this corollary that is dragged around that argument like a ball on a chain. You cannot separate the two. And the corollary is we're going to do all this good and yes, pragmatically, it's great. It's much better that you're creating some wind turbines than that you're not, or that you're recycling, or that you're using less water, or that you're creating a plant that uh, gets uh, certification for being sustainable. That's all great. But what Richard Edelman told me in Davos, and I quote, 
he said, I'm not that interested in political citizenship. I believe in the power of markets. And he wedded that thought to the idea that corporations have become good actors. And that is the sort of discursive reality in that world and increasingly in the world of government. It is that it's not just, hey, isn't it nice from a pragmatic perspective that uh, British Petroleum or JP Morgan Chase are adopting these environmental, sustainable, social responsibility programs. If we just stopped there, I'd have to agree with you and say, yeah, that's a lot better than if they're not. But the problem is there's always this corollary. And, and what that is, is therefore, government can retreat. Therefore, we can regulate ourselves. Therefore, we can run your schools and water systems. Therefore, we can pay fewer taxes and uh, gut social programs because we are going to come in and be the saviors. We're going to solve the environment. We're going to solve social inequality. So, Fergal, here's the deal. If we could get just the first part without the corollary, I'd be agreeing with you. And I'd say, that's great. Yeah, go for it. Let's have corporations trying to step up their game and let's have governments trying to do what they can do on all of these pressing social and environmental issues. But the problem is it, it becomes a prisoner's dilemma. We only get one. You, you get to the heart of a, a very interesting question and this question of the, the, the role of government, the role of regulation. And you say, and, and you argue, that uh, corporations are strategically deploying sustainability programs. Well, what do you see as the connection between corporate sustainability in whatever form it's taking and regulation and uh, attitudes that you see right now in America to regulation? Well, I mean, I think we see a, a weird um, a bifurcation of attitudes in a way that we haven't for quite some time. Uh, and I think this would be true across the Western world when we're thinking of regulation when we're thinking of government's role in society and government's role in the economy, I think we are seeing that the, the dominance of the idea that government should not play a role in regulating the economy is shattering at the moment in the face of the COVID crisis. I think that the COVID crisis has revealed cracks and fissures in our economy, radical social inequality, racial inequality, uh, decaying environment. Um, I, I think that in the same way, the free market idea started to be challenged in the early 2000s, the sort of benevolent capitalism idea that's now been overlaid on the free market idea is uh, is fracturing in in the face of a world that is in a serious serious crisis and you know who who bails us out when we are in this serious public health crisis it's governments i mean corporations you know sort of retreated with their tails between their legs for the most part some of them saw ways to make a lot of money out of the crisis uh, like Amazon and and other big tech firms, others, you know, found their markets drying up. Whether it's the oil and gas industry or some retail sectors uh, like uh, airlines, and went to the government to get bailed out. 
came to taxpayers who they had been, you know, for years saying, you know, we we want we want fewer taxes, fewer taxes, don't tax us, don't tax us. And who do they go to? They go to, you know, Joe and Jane taxpayer and ask for a bailout. So I think that the the cracks in the system have just been so revealed. And I think we now are in this situation, and I'll talk about the United States, but I think this applies everywhere. It's more extreme in the United States, where we have a populist leader who is committed to a free market ideology in economic terms, but who gains a lot of his uh, political energy um, from a base that is less concerned about economic issues and more concerned about the social sort of ideologies that he espouses. And I think that's what energizes his base in terms of this kind of populist right-wing approach. You have a lot of business leaders who are appalled by the social side of what he's doing, but are working like crazy to leverage his desire and his willingness to deregulate and to privatize. Um, They're all in there lobbying like crazy, I documented in my book, while at the same time, they're talking about how important equality is. So you've, you've got everything, I think, is really nakedly revealed by COVID and more recently by um, the uprisings against racial injustice. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen. But what I do know is that when you combine that with, a, uh, with recent movements within the traditional institutions of democracy, whether it's Bernie Sanders, whether it's Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you think of them as individuals, whether it's uh, AOC in the United States, progressive wing of the Labour Party, progressive wing of the Democratic Party, the new Democratic Party, which is a socialist party in Canada. Um, wherever you look, you're starting to see ideas about the proactive, positive role of government at local levels, at regional levels, at national levels, um, you're starting to see that idea come back into vogue. Because I think it's very clear that we are kind of teetering on the brink of giving up entirely on the idea of democracy, led to that place by corporations and their assault on the social state over the last 40 years. And I think there's a real sensibility that this isn't working. Um, and that is what uh, Sanders or Corbyn or or any other of these movements that have kind of big government agendas, that is what's fueling them. Um, and I think it's particularly pronounced amongst youth. So I, I, one of my real concerns in this book and film is to ensure that that progressive energy remains in the lane of democratic solutions and doesn't take the off-ramp and get diverted by corporations saying, no, no, we can do it. We can save the world. Come this way. Come to us. Um, I think it's really important that we stay. Uh, and I say, you know, whatever you think of Corbyn, whatever you think of Sanders, whatever you think of these kinds of movements and the men and women who run them, what they represent, what they're symptomatic of, is a kind of uh, roiling democratic sensibility that uh, that gives me great hope actually 
yeah, and it's un- unfolding right now, and, and it's, as you say, very powerful, although at the same time, it, uh, you do see surveys. I mean, people were very impressed with how, how fast uh, people's opinion in America, at least, were changing with respect to Black Lives Matters and so forth, but that seems to be dropping off again. It's just been a temporary thing. Uh, quite difficult to parse how that's going to uh, play out, but uh, very, very interesting. Now, can you talk a little bit, I mean, as at the heart of this, this idea is how corporations are constituted, I suppose. Can you talk about this idea of shareholder primacy, how, you, how important this is and, and how you think, or is it even changing and possibly changing? We see many coalitions of investor groups taking on many more ESG type thinking and dimensions. And the, the, you hear a lot of uh, talk, not least, uh, you know, uh, chief executives of fund management companies sending out letters and, and all that kind of thing. But more fundamentally, is this the, the, the nub of the issue that corporations are legally constituted, that they have to, should we say, maximize return on shareholders' equity? Or, and, and, and to what role do the investors play in that? Now, clearly the courts are, are important, but you know, in terms of investors... Yeah. Yeah, it's a really important issue. I mean, when Larry Fink issues his letter and uh, of BlackRock and, and talks about the importance of social good and, and corporations have to respect environmental values and all of that, it, it is it is indeed very seductive when we see all the ESG movements and we see shareholder resolutions and all of that, it's it's very seductive. Um but Again, I go back and it's a very simple analogy, but I use the lawnmower analogy. People are saying the lawnmower is too loud. It's too, its blades are too inaccurate. It's causing too much destruction to the lawn. It's making too much noise. So we're going to issue letters and we're going to issue proclamations and we're going to say lawnmowers should be quieter. Uh, lawnmowers shouldn't make as much uh, of a um, pollution. Uh, lawnmowers should be electric. Uh, we're going to do all of that, but none of that changes the lawnmower into a vacuum cleaner to do your rug. It doesn't change the lawnmower into a blender to make your smoothie. The lawnmower is still a lawnmower. And so despite all the ESG and the shareholder proclamations and resolutions and the fine words from CEOs and investment fund managers, the corporation is still the corporation. And what that means is, again, and I go back to the idea that I was talking about earlier, if you are an investor and you put a dollar into a company, no matter how nice you are, no matter how much you care about the world, no matter any of that, you expect not only to get that dollar back from the company, but to get a bit more back as well. And as an investor, you may say, I'm willing to get a little bit less back if you act in nice ways. So, you know, if I put a dollar in or a pound in, I'm willing to get back a dollar ten or a pound ten pence instead of one twenty, but I'm not willing to not get anything back, and I'm not willing to lose my dollar or my pound. So you're always constrained by that. 
by having to generate a return for the investor. And, you know, you look at uh, a law professor who sadly has departed, uh, Professor Lynn Stout, wrote a book called The Shareholder shareholder primacy myth, something like that. I can't remember the exact name, but it was an excellent book. I wrote an endorsement for it because it was the best argument and it remains the best argument out there for shareholder primacy not being quite as primary as we might have expected it to be in the past. And if I can, with respect, summarize her argument, her argument is basically that shareholders are people too, that that we as shareholders want good things for the world. So she says, we're willing to take a little bit less in return for companies doing as much more as they can uh, for the environment and for society. But there's the key. We're willing to take a little bit less. So that now becomes the new goalpost that we have to kick the ball into for social and environmental good. We're willing to take a little bit less. And that's not going to provide a lot more room. We still, as investors, want to return. We're willing to take a little bit less if our companies do more for the environment and society. But if that's the best we can come up with, we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Very very interesting. Can you talk about how pervasive, we talked about uh, a little bit uh, about regulation. How pervasive is self-regulatory thinking and and, and belief in self-regulation? And what is the evidence um, as to its effectiveness? Yeah, so I talk about that quite a bit in the book, and I look at uh, some of the evidence. There are many academic studies that have been done. And suffice it to say, the answer to your two-part question, the first part is it's very pervasive. Um, There is no... Uh, interface between corporation and government or corporate groups and industry representative groups and government where self-regulation isn't at the top of the agenda, where corporations aren't saying, we can regulate ourselves, you don't need to regulate us. That is a very pervasive viewpoint. It's one that many governments have bought into, and it's one that many people buy into because they see on the surface that corporations are trying to do good. And so they say, well, I, I guess if they're trying to do good, We don't need to try to stop them from doing bad uh, because they're not doing bad, so we don't need regulation. So that logic has become very pervasive in elite economic, government, corporate circles. How effective is is self-regulation? Not very. Uh, You know, the evidence that it's very hard to measure, obviously, but some people try to do it. And there are books and academic articles and studies and commissioned reports. And in short, they basically come down to the fact that self-regulation is not very effective, that if a company is, which it is, compelled always to ensure that what it does and what it doesn't do will create returns for investors, then the rules that that company is going to create for itself and the way that that company is going to enforce those rules are always going to be beholden to that primary obligation, which is to create wealth for shareholders. And that is going to mean that either you're going to get very weak rules, or you're going to get very weak enforcement, or you're going to get both. And the problem, the fundamental problem with self-regulation regimes is that there's no independent monitoring 
of whether they comply with standards that either they create or some other organization creates. And so one way that that's solved, apparently solved, is for corporations to team up with NGOs like the World Wildlife Fund. And the idea is that if we team up with an NGO, then the NGO will become our watchdog. And that the fact that government is no longer having oversight over us is solved because now we have an NGO having oversight over us. But the problem is NGOs don't have very many resources. They don't have any legal um, rights to go and inspect a company's site or to issue an enforcement order or to put to put an executive in jail or to find yeah, they they can't do the things that regular that regulators can do. And there's a further problem that when you scratch beneath the surface, many of the companies that are being so-called overseen and regulated by NGOs are actually funding those NGOs significantly. And you know, you don't need to be uh, a rocket scientist to know uh, that you don't bite the hand that feeds you. So it's not effective to have a monitoring system where the monitor is being funded by the monetee, by the entity that's being monitored. And so you have all these kinds of problems and they, they're rife. And I do a fairly detailed uh, case study of carbon trading regimes because carbon trading is a form of self-regulation. And I just show how there's just a, a wild west of just inaccuracy and misinformation and, and cheating and, and uh, lack of oversight uh, that goes on around carbon trading that should make us really, really concerned because the science seems to show that the effects of carbon trading on reduction of greenhouse gas emissions are minuscule. Um, and yet that's being sold to us as a viable alternative to other forms of regulation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Can you talk a bit about the power uh, of, of consumers? Because, you know, uh, some people are, are very optimistic and believe that, you know, we're in a kind of heading towards at least a golden age of consumer activism. And quite simply, companies can't get away with bad behavior because if they do, they get punished. You know, their products won't be bought. And there's so many boycotts and various activities, some quite effective uh, on corporate behavior. I mean, it's an analog. I suppose, of shareholder activism in some sense yeah. and, and also connected to markets. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the idea that consumers can have real power over the economy is an idea that corporations have happily gone along with because consumers, in fact, have very little power. I mean, you can, as a consumer, withdraw your support for a particular company over a particular issue but there's absolutely no coordination. You know, sometimes you'll have a boycott that's quite successful over a very pointed and particular issue. Sometimes that'll work. But firstly, consumers don't get all the information they would need to make good political decisions. They have no power, unlike government, they have no power to demand information from a company. Just think of trying to get uh, information about what is in your own contract with your telecommunications provider. 
you know, I, I mean, you can't even get through to them on the phone. And when you do, the person won't know anything. And, you know, on and on and on. It's impossible to deal with these companies just in our daily life to try to set up an account for Wi-Fi. Um, so the idea, <laughs> the idea that we're somehow as consumers going to be well enough informed to make informed decisions is highly questionable. Then how do we as consumers coordinate among ourselves to be effective? Um, and, and what really is our power? And again, there have been many academic studies on this. And suffice it to say that if corporations only have to worry about consumers, they don't have to worry about very much at all. You know, again, there, there's, there's no, no real oversight. There's no real information. There's no enforcement ability. There's no ability to issue a fine. There's no ability to do anything. And, and so that is a world that corporations want, uh, one where they, and that's our neoliberal world, where everything is individualized. Corporations have individual responsibility to be socially responsible. Consumers have individual responsibility to make responsible choices in the marketplace. Um, and that's it, that it becomes just all about the market and actors, both on the corporate and consumer side, trying to be responsible in the market. And that is a world of pretty well complete impunity for corporations. And so what I argue for in the book is let's embrace our power as citizens. That's where we have real power as citizens to elect government, to legally regulate corporations. One of my big concerns as a legal scholar and as a person who believes in the rule of law is that this whole neoliberal agenda now sort of wrapped up in the idea of good corporations is really a an assault on the rule of law it is about trying to diminish the sovereignty of law to govern our lives it's about running away from law it's about having law all on the side of protecting property and contract rights and corporate rights and none of the law on the side of protecting social interests and environmental interests. Just as a person who believes in law, that is a problem. One of the academic articles I wrote that the book is based on is called The Invisible Hand of Law, um, because it's all about how law itself is made invisible in this whole set of discourses. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think you quote in the book, this quote, deregulation is really a form of de-democratization. <laughs> Which is that the, the democratic representatives, um, you know, uh, which which were being denied, the, it was the only official, you know, uh, political vehicle to control corporate behavior. You say uh, that one of the jobs is corporations to externalize costs. Can you talk about that, particularly in light of the environmental crises we're facing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I in my first book, I called the corporation an externalizing machine. And what that means is, is very simply that uh, a corporation tries to reduce its costs. Um, you know, it's going to make more profit if it has fewer costs. Obviously, the ways you make profit is you increase the revenue you pull in and you reduce the cost. So you try to pay workers less. The less you, the, 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 the less you have to pay to workers, the higher your profits are. You try to have as high a price as you can to still have a good market. So everything you're doing is about getting rid of costs 
and trying to attract revenue. And so one of the ways you get rid of costs, obviously, is to ruin the environment. It costs a lot less for a corporation to run a plant if it doesn't have to worry about what it's uh, emitting into the air or into the river that runs next to the plant. It's a lot cheaper to produce things if you just treat the world as a garbage dump. That is the sort of traditional thinking. So you externalize a cost when you put smoke into the air and that smoke causes people to become sick. Those people have now suffered the cost that you would have had to pay if you were to put in proper filters on your smokestack. But that is an area, Joe, where we are seeing substantial progress. Right. So that's that's the traditional view. That's the traditional view. So what corporations are are realizing now is that, and this is the sort of win-win solution, is that they can actually benefit, they can actually make money by reducing costs to the environment. So if I'm a hotel chain and I wash my towels uh, every three days rather than every day, or I encourage guests not to, you know, to reuse towels, then I'm going to make more money as a hotel chain and I'm going to cause less harm to the environment. So there, there's no question, uh, you know, it also as renewable fuels uh, become cheaper or at least the same price as traditional fossil fuels, then companies can say, we can both help the environment and help ourselves. And, and that's great. I mean, and, and as I say, there are some corporations that are better at that than others. And that's great because they are truly finding ways to both serve themselves and serve the environment. You know, my argument is twofold on that. One is they're going to pretty quickly hit a wall where they're not going to be able to do that, depending on what industry they're in. If they're in oil and gas, their business model is based on extracting oil and gas. Um, they're going to have to somehow continue that business model to stay profitable. If they're a hotel chain, yes, they can stop externalizing costs and laundry, but they'll continue externalizing costs by busting unions and paying their workers nothing. So, you know, it's, it's a very unreliable uh, form when we have to always rely on doing good in a way that helps them do well. I'm not saying it doesn't lead to some progress, but it's highly unreliable. Uh, it's a very spotty and limited way uh, to do good. Where it happens, great. So that's the first problem. The second problem is the one that I keep coming back to, which is that the quid pro quo that corporations expect for making the effort to find win-win solutions is that government won't bother them anymore, that they will now be seen as, uh, that the market will now be seen as capable of doing the job of both creating wealth and protecting the environment and society that we can always find win-win solutions. And therefore, we don't need government to intervene in the market. That is the logic that ideologically gets foisted upon us uh, as a result of this. So those are my two big reservations about what otherwise looks like a fairly pragmatically positive development. Yeah, fantastic. How does the definition of sustainability get narrowed? And what are the implications? What do we need to do about this? The definition of sustainability gets narrowed to, in, in the hands of business, to what is good for business 
that it can do that is sustainable. It, it, it actually becomes more about sustaining the business than it becomes about sustaining the environment. So the question that a business, a, a corporation is always going to ask is how can we save money? How can we reduce our costs by doing something that's also good for the environment? So can we recycle stuff? Can we use less water? Can we reuse water? Uh, can we use renewable fuels? All of those questions are means to an end. They are how can we do something that is good for the environment as a means to help our end of helping ourselves. And, and as I've suggested, that is very limited. And I think one of uh, getting into your second question, what do we do about all this? One of the things that we need to do as citizens is be very skeptical of business interpretations of these very important concepts, whether it's human rights, sustainability, democracy, safety, all of these concepts are capable of different kinds of conceptions. They're all fairly broad concepts that can be differently interpreted. And, I, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I felt that these kinds of concepts were, were being captured by the corporate sector, that the conceptions that we'd started to equate to the concepts were conceptions that were driven by the corporate perspective so that we can only go as far on solving climate change as uh, is profitable. We can only go as far as sustainability as is profitable. We can only go as far as human rights as is profitable. And, and so because of their uh, ideological firepower, corporations have been succeeding in convincing all of us that we have to adopt these fairly narrow business-oriented conceptions of these fundamental concepts. And, and so in terms of how we solve these problems, I mean, my job as a, in effect, a knowledge or cultural worker is to kind of try to lay out the problem, try to explain how we're thinking about it and why perhaps we should be thinking differently about it. Yeah. I'm not that good at coming up with, and nor do I think it's a great idea to come up with five-year plans with magic bullets about how to save society. That was tried by authoritarian communist leaders and was an abject failure. Um, what I do think is that we need to guide ourselves on, uh, on the basis of certain values that we've been developing since the Enlightenment time. Values like democracy, like human rights more recently, like sustainability, but values where those things are ends in themselves rather than tied to the needs uh, and objectives of business. And so we need to start thinking about how we can make democracy work properly, how we can truly solve climate uh, with scientific evidence and public institutions, how we can address things like the current public health crisis, how we can address human rights and the, the the widening uh, gaps of, of inequality, racial and economic. Um, how can we solve these things in ways where we collectively, democratically, as a society, which of course Thatcher says there's no such thing, but saying that there is such a thing as society 
that we do have a collective presence in the world and that we need to work cooperatively and collectively and democratically to solve these problems and not go down this other path where we look to fundamentally undemocratic and I would say anti-democratic self-interested institutions who are dangling the prospect that they will save the world for us. We need to avoid that. And that's why I wrote the book and made the film. Well, thank you, Joel, um, for a fascinating overview of the important work you've been doing. And I wish you the very best of success with your book and with your film, which a uh, very important message for today. Thanks so much, Fergal. And I've really enjoyed speaking with you and keep up the good work. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Roman Krisnarek's thought-provoking new book, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades, centuries. Available online and in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.